Welcome to Modern Little Podcast, another great show this week. We are continuing our discussion of the book, Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love with our relationship guru, Reverend Manish Mishra Marzetti. Before we bring on Reverend Manish, Fran, you know what time it is. I think we need some weekend shenanigans and notable events. Well, I definitely had a notable event this past week. I got a new body part. (laughs) Yes, you did. And I'm glad you're talking about it. Well, you know, it's kind of common practice anymore. Last Tuesday, I had a total hip replacement of my right hip. My right hip had been bad for a while and it wasn't going to get any better. I have a lot of travel scheduled for next year and I just wanted to be all good for that. I had seen my late husband through replacing both of his hips uh, 20 years ago. A lot has changed in 20 years for sure. I was only in the hospital for one night and I came home the next day. I started my physical therapy a couple days ago. I'll be doing that in my house for a couple of weeks, and then I'll do it as an outpatient. I am doing very well. I do get impatient, so I have to force myself to slow down and rest. But I got to tell you, and Sherry, you know this too, our weather has been so bad, it's actually been the best time to be inside recuperating. I have the fire going, I have lots of football, and I have Netflix. It's not so much shenanigans, but that's my news. That's my notable event. It sounds like a perfect life, actually. (laughs) Fire. Well, not quite. Well, yeah. (laughs) A fireplace roaring and Netflix. I don't know if you can get any better, Fran. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I said I would walk Skybridge at night and report back. So I did. My report is the sky bridge is not illuminated for night walks yet because they need a generator that has not come in. But I did walk it again, and it truly is a fun adventure. I also found out that on opening weekend, 10,000 people walked sky bridge, and the second weekend, 27,000 people walked the sky bridge. It's a pretty big attraction in northern Michigan. 27,000 is mind-boggling. You know, that is. I was pleasantly surprised at that number because that's a lot of people walking that sky bridge. Yeah. Stay tuned for more shenanigans. (laughs) We are welcoming back Reverend Manish Mishra Marzetti, Senior Minister at the First Unitarian Universalist Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, And he is our resident love guru, Reverend Manish. Welcome back to Modern Whittle Podcast. I'm delighted to be back. And thank you for the honor of being a love guru. That's awesome. (laughs) You are definitely our love guru, Manish. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm honored and tickled pink. Thank you. Great to be back. On this week's episode, we are discussing dates five and six from the book, Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love by John and Julie Gottman, PhDs, and Doug and Dr. Rachel Abrams. So here we go. Date night five, room to grow, family. And I want to tell you that when I first read this chapter, I thought, Bill and I didn't need to have this date. We were older when we got married, and all the kids were young adults. 
guess what? I was wrong. Although I do remember on our very first date, I said to him, if you want to have more children, you're barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> he assured me that he did not want any more children. And I told the story to a friend once and she said, Sherry, you invented speed dating. <laughs> and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> and I've actually never done speed dating, but I thought that was quite humorous. Fran, did you and Skip, because you were a second marriage and Skip was a bachelor, yeah. have any discussions about family? I think we did several times over the course of not just, like we dated and lived together basically for four years before we got married. And during that time, even throughout our first few years of marriage, I have a son. My son is from my first marriage. Skip had never been married before. I think that we knew enough that we needed to enjoy our relationship, just the two of us to begin with, although my son lived with us before we even thought about bringing any other children into that relationship. And then as time went on, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money when we started out and adoption was going to be extremely expensive. So we kind of put it on the back burner and eventually it just was not an issue anymore. Did I ever regret it? Not really. We got to do all the family things because of my son. Did Skip regret it later on? Uh, yes, I, I think he did. He was the last in line in his family. So that end of his family tree went away when he went away. But you know what? It all worked out in the end. Andy was basically our child. It all worked out. I do love what the Gottmans state in the book. They say family can be defined as wherever and with whomever you feel love, belonging, and a sense of home. What's most important is that you talk about what family means and what you both want your family to look like and be like. And with that, Manish, you and Jeff decided to adopt. And when did you have the conversation regarding family? This is a great story and I'm glad you asked. And you know, literally what I wrote down in front of me as we're talking before you offered the quote from the, the Gottman's book, what I wrote down is what does family mean? That's the critical question for any relationship that might evolve into becoming long-term. And it is one of the questions that has to be tackled or figured out in order to, to determine or have a sense of whether the relationship is going to be a long-term relationship or not. And it's interesting. We all make relationship mistakes. And in my first marriage, as I've alluded to in some of our other podcasts, early on in that figuring out stage, that former spouse and I had this conversation and we had very different notions of family. One of us with the notion of children will never be a part of it. It's the two of us. That's what family means. And I had the notion that children are integral. And we both had this assumption that we would grow out of where we each were at. With time, we'd arrive at different understandings of what family could be, and neither of us did. And it became, over time, a significant kind of divergence in that marital relationship. So by the time Jeff and I were getting acquainted, you're going to love this, Sherry. I was totally in that speed dating mode because, you know, there's no time to waste. Like this is a second marriage. You know, I, I'd already been dating folks for a couple of years. I wanted to figure out early whether things are going to have the potential even to get serious or not. Jeff and I met online on Match.com. We had a couple of weeks of uh, telephone conversations and e-communications daily. 
And then we had our first date. And I kid you not, our first in-person date, we're having dinner. And I literally said to him, so what do you think about kids? And what, what is, have you ever thought about having kids? What's that going to mean to you and all that? I could tell the total shock on his face at receiving that question. In-person meeting number one. But it's just kind of where I was at. Like, if it's not going to work, then what are we doing? That was like speed dating question number one that I threw at him. Speed dating question number two was then also, so how would it work being a minister's spouse? So it's a very public profession. How do you feel about that? Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. I was not wasting any time. So he said right away for the first date, in-person date, that yeah, he's very open to that and interested in that. And of course, open is not the same thing as this would be a joy. I would love to do this. So we took things slowly. I wasn't sure how to interpret. We were still getting acquainted, so I wasn't sure how to interpret what he was saying to me. But sure enough, as the relationship deepened, a couple of years passed, it was clear that we're both on the same page. We were living in New Jersey at the time in the Philadelphia suburbs and embarked on our adoption journey. Then for couples who are not able to conceive naturally for whatever set of circumstances, there are a variety of, of options for heterosexual couples that includes IVF and fertility treatments, things like that. One can also turn to surrogacy, which is very, very expensive. There's adoption and there's fostering. Adoption's much less expensive than something like surrogacy. Fostering is perhaps the least cost option. We were holding the dream of wanting to have babies in our lives, starting from the very beginning. With fostering, that isn't always guaranteed. It's possible. We went the adoption route. We chose to do that. You almost, word for word, quoted one of the passages that I had highlighted in the book. If one of you wants children and one doesn't, this can be a deal breaker for a relationship. If you get married thinking you can get your partner to change their mind on this issue somewhere down the line, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Absolutely. If you're entering a long-term relationship, what I came to understand from my first marriage is you have to accept how the other person is presenting themselves, what they're telling you about themselves, their life dreams, their self-understandings. You must be fully okay with how they are understanding themselves and presenting themselves to you from the beginning and understanding that that can evolve and change. But what if it doesn't, right? What if they are very clear from the get-go about who they are you have to be okay with that as well. Manish, was Jeff married before? No, I am his first spouse. I'd had a marriage. He'd had a long-term relationship prior to him and I meeting. So essentially, we were each other's second long-term committed relationships. In the book, the Gottmans quote sociologist Ernest Burgess, who was one of the first people who studied married couples. In the 1930s, he wanted to develop a scientific measure to predict the success rate of marriages. In his longitudinal study of married couples, he found out the following. Beginning with newlyweds, you went further along in your marriage spectrum. Marital satisfaction was a U-shaped curve. Marital satisfaction began plummeting after the wedding and then took a big downward dive when the first child arrived. <laughs> Taking bigger nosedives with every subsequent 
child. If a couple did not divorce while at the bottom of the curve, the marital satisfaction began increasing when the youngest child left home. This wasn't just true for the early part of the 20th century. This is the norm. And I thought that was extremely interesting. I totally believe that. And I think all three of us have a variety of experiences in this regard. When you add children into the mix, the nature of the marriage fundamentally changes. You've got this essentially heart commitment, heart project that is as important as the one-on-one marital connection, in some ways more so because little lives are dependent on you as the adults for their well-being, for their nurturance, for their growth and learning fundamentally changes the marriage. People tell you that before children enter your life, but the living into it is so different than anything you could understand hypothetically. They pointed out, and I think we can all agree on this, that children need and demand and deserve your love, time, and attention, but it should not be at the the expense of your primary relationship with each other. And I think a lot of times that's what happens. And that's why satisfaction with the marriages start to go downhill because all the attention is focused on the children. And you forget that it's your relationship that brought those children into your family. Absolutely right. I'd even go a step further. I'd say it's the norm that the children become the focus. You start to feel like what's happened to the marriage. Like it's this loss. Like you don't have the same relationship that you did prior to the children arriving. That's the downward curve of that U-curve you're describing. And then a couple of things can happen. Either it's a disastrous tension in the marriage that can't be figured out, or the couple has to have a lot of conversation, you know, for Jeff and I did. And I was the one with that was holding the feeling of like, wait, what's happened? I had this beautiful relationship with my partner, my spouse, and it's not the same anymore. I was feeling this grief and sense of loss. And we had to really buckle down, dig into that, work on that together. And as we worked on that together, you start to go up the other side of the U-curve. That's absolutely right. And the Gottman say that there are two main goals that are necessary to remain happy in a marriage with children. The first goal is, is that both partners should work to stay involved during the pregnancy and the birth of the children. Both should be equally involved as much as possible with the baby. If there is low conflict and continued sex, dad will stay involved with the baby. The second most important thing is for the two of you to maintain intimacy and connection. You need to make your relationship a priority. If you don't, you will fall to the bottom of the curve and not get out for 18 years if you don't divorce first. Absolutely right. Sherry, I think you and I both know couples who have been married and have children, and they are so focused on the kids, and so devoted to the kids, everything is about the kids, that when they eventually leave home, we have heard them say, we have nothing in common anymore. And we hear about these couples that we know that have been married for a lot, a lot of years, and they end up divorcing. Oh, that makes me sad to hear. That makes me so sad. I thrive on intimacy. Even in my friendships, I thrive on intimacy, right? So the thought of just like living parallel lives for that length of time just makes me sad to hear that. It does. And it's so sad because you start out so happy. And most people want to have children. And this should not be the failure 
of the marriage. Right. It becomes a question of how do you do both and the figuring out of how to do both, how to both be fully present to the children in a loving, positive, good way and to each other as partners and spouses. It is hard because if you're feeling that disappointment and sense of loss, that the marriage is not the same, then the natural human instinct is to go to blame. Who's to blame for the fact that the marriage is not the same? Often the partners blame each other, the spouses blame each other, or they might be holding resentment about the kids, but if they're good human beings, they're not actually acting out on that towards the kids. It often gets directed towards each other, the adults in the family, right? And so you have to kind of work through the resentment and the blame and the sadness and the grief to get to, no, 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 no. This is context. Circumstances have changed. We actually really love each other and we want to work on it. Beautifully stated. So let's move on to date six, which is play with me, fun and adventure. I loved this date. I loved this chapter. I think Sherry, you and I both know how important fun and adventure are to maintaining a relationship, to keeping that spark in a relationship. I tell people quite often that I never started having fun until I met my second husband. He taught me how to have fun, just being silly with each other, making plans for travel, going someplace different. There are so many good quotes in this chapter, the couples that play together, stay together, but that play and fun is often the first thing to go in a relationship because of work and family and stress and all of that. It's almost like you have to go back, especially once there's families expanded and you've got kids. It's like trying to remember what did we used to do that we really enjoyed? Was it travel? Was it going out to restaurants? Was it going to the movies? Was it a date night playing board games? And throughout the course of a relationship, you can return to those core strengths, those activities that were fun, that were mutually enjoyable, and then even begin to expand them. Like, what would, what would we want to try and do that we haven't done before, you know? But you have to bring intentionality to that to not lose it. Bill and I had a wonderful marriage. The kids were grown, and that's a totally different look than having children under your feet all the time, and I get that. And he taught me so much. He taught me how to fish, motor coaching, and for the audience, Bill and I worked together for 15 years. I ran his office in his business, and so we were together 24-7, and after I learned how not to, I would call it intrude into his business. He ran the business, I ran the house. That's how we kind of decided to separate everything because in another career, I did run a business. I had to work that out in the beginning when I started working with him. But the thing that I am still impressed with, because my husband was a man's man, he was a sports fisherman. He hunted. He did all of this manly stuff. And yet the one thing he loved was ballroom dancing. And we took ballroom dance lessons for years. We did a few showcases. And it's just a wonderful memory. They point out that it's important to have your own activities that you like to do and your activities that you do together Sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're not. It's nice to share all of them though. 
one of the wives of the couples that they interviewed. And we have all seen this. I remember sitting in public a lot of times with Skip. This lady says, I'm worried if we don't make an effort to do new things, I'm worried we'll end up like one of those couples who sit in restaurants year after year with absolutely nothing new or interesting to say to each other. When we go out, anytime we go out, I'm amazed. I will watch a couple come in, sit down, dinner, blah, blah, blah. They're not saying a word to each other. We've seen the same thing. Uh, Jeff and I were at a restaurant a couple years ago and there was a older gay couple, two guys older than us. And we were watching, they had nothing to say to one another. And one of them was even falling asleep as the meal was progressing. And I was like, oh my gosh, is this our future? I hope this isn't our future for it not to be. How do you keep a spirit of discovery alive in the relationship. Each individual, we're constantly learning and growing, right? For example, Sherry, you and Pran, you've developed this love of podcasting. It wasn't a lifelong love. It's something you've discovered and come to. My spouse, Jeff, particularly during the pandemic, found a love of and a rediscovery of board games and these types of things, which mm -hmm. is, I enjoy. It's not totally my thing, but I push myself a little bit. It's like, can I drop in on his fun activity so that we can share it a little bit. One of my fun activities is improv theater. I love going out. I love going to hear music and going to theater and particularly improvisational theater. Then he joins me, he drops in on my activities and my fun. And so pushing yourself to share each other's joy and fun is a form of adventure in and of itself. It's expanding your comfort zones, right? To try out something that isn't naturally you, but you're doing it for relationship. You're doing it to share an experience. Anytime that you're doing things together, new things, familiar things, you know, you're building on that constant supply of, you pull up some things like a year later and you'll say, oh my gosh, do you remember when we went blah, 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 and we ran into blah, 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 or this happened or that, and you sit there and it takes you back and you start laughing and it's just those shared memories. And it doesn't need to be like fancy, you know, like I think in our culture, particularly pre-pandemic, I think the pandemic has changed this a little bit, a little bit. When we think of it, just adventure, adventureness in a, in a relationship, often travel is the big thing people go to in their heads. It's like, you know, the, the pandemic showed us that a walk around the block together can be a, a nice shared activity and even feel adventurous. We did little family hikes. There were times during the past couple of years where going out for ice cream was the adventure for the weekend, you know? But it really felt that way, given the context and all that. So adventure doesn't have to be something grandiose. It can be an ordinary, everyday thing that we make special. That happened with me and my grandchildren and daughter during the pandemic. There's a park maybe one-tenth of a mile from where I live. And so we would pack a picnic lunch and just go down to the park and have a picnic I and then that. come home. That's great. Doesn't have to be fancy. It does not have to be fancy. And it's an adventure because it's not something you typically do, right? So it feels special and it's a shared memory. You're absolutely right about that. Isn't that the nice part of realizing how, how special you're your relationship is. I sometimes will hear the fellow that I'm with right now, I will hear him telling someone that I do this podcast or that I've been someplace. 
A lot of it is golf. He will tell someone, Fran's been to the Masters twice. He has his podcast now. On the opposite end of that, I am always telling people about his life experiences and what he does for adventure. And we both have separate things, but we both have things we like to do together. And you never know how that spirit of adventure is going to find you and what it might look like. Decades ago, I was at a, at a Christmas party. I was in my 20s, late 20s. I met somebody who was in their 50s at the time, and they were telling me how they spent an entire year learning how to ice skate so that they could play adult recreational ice hockey. I must have been 20, 25 years, over, yeah, probably 25 years younger than this person. And I was like, I would love to do that. I've never even thought of that, spending a year learning how to ice skate so that I could do ice hockey. So I did. Oh I my did. gosh. I took my inspiration from this guy who was in it, you know, like 25 years older than me. If you get an inspiration, if you get a muse strikes you of like, why not try something, try it. Keep living, keep choosing to experience the fullness of life. That is one of the reasons why we're here in these embodied forms. It's to experience the options and the beauty and the experiences that are all around us. Why not? Let's do it all. Whatever strikes your interest and fancy, try it out. And with that, we will end date six for now. Manish, once again, it is always a pleasure having you on the show. I love being here with you and Fran. Thank you for the invitation. And I, I look forward to being with you again. Do you realize we only have two more dates, two more chapters? Oh my goodness. We'll look forward to having another deep conversation soon then. Okay. Bye-bye. We want to thank our executive producer for her continued expert advice and critiques of our podcast. A very special thanks to Reverend Manish. It is always great having him on our show. And of course, we want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in and listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to write a comment, our email address is modern.whittle.podcast at gmail.com. Again, modern.whittle.podcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram at modernwhittlepodcast. You can listen to our podcast on the following apps, Anchor, Spotify, Breakers, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Fran. And our next episode, we will be concluding our discussion on the book, Eight Dates. We're going to discuss something to believe in, growth and spirituality, and a lifetime of love, dreams. The closing quote for this week is just a short quote that came across my Facebook feed yesterday. At any moment, you have the power to say, this is not how the story is going to end. See you next time. Bye-bye.
Jesus, because